Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. Come in! Heading into the new presidential election cycle, we reconnect with 2008 guest Dr. Andy Perrin to talk about changes in the American political public. In his new book, American Democracy, From Tocqueville to Town Halls to Twitter, Perrin brings a uniquely sociological approach to the study of democracy. More so than polls, candidates, and institutions, Perrin shows how major elections become about the performance of certain visions of the public, as much as they decide which people should lead us. Welcome to Office Hours, Andy. Um, this is a book about American democracy, and as the 2016 presidential election approaches, many people, including Bernie Sanders running for um, the Democratic nomination, seem to be arguing that today our democracy is being undermined in part by the influence of vast sums of money from wealthy donors who do not have to disclose where their money is coming from or where it is going. Um, do you agree with this negative view? What is your own assessment of the state of American democracy today? Um, that, those are a couple of different questions. Let me see if I can kind of take them one by one. Um, so do I think that um, large sums of, of money in politics distorts the, po the process and distorts the democracy? Sure, I do think that. But I think it's a lot less important than Sanders and others who have uh, addressed this question um, seem to make it. Um, so, and I'll, and I'll tell you a couple of reasons for that. The principal reason I think um, that is that we need to think about what the mechanisms are by which we might expect money to corrupt that democratic process. Um, money doesn't actually buy votes. Um, people are still uh, endowed with a single vote per person um, and, um, uh, and with certain um, limitations. Uh, you know, I, I think that that, that mechanism, need, we need to understand what it is we're saying when we say that money buys elections. Um, so the main thing that people spend or the candidates spend that money on is ever more escalating approaches to advertising, um, ways to sort of capture more people's eyeballs, as well as ways to try to make some people more likely to come out to vote and other people less likely to come out to vote. Uh, but none of that is uh, is actually in itself a distorting process. All of those are just about um, sort of strategy within a, a political campaign. Um, and I think that, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, in, in, in particular, some of the research on uh, policy responsiveness shows us that, um, in fact, most of the time, um, government actually implements policies that most people say they want. Uh, and so I think um, people have been cynical about the political process for a really long time. Um, and I do think that the big sums of money, post Citizens United in particular, um, present a, a worrisome development in democracy. I just don't think it's the most worrisome d development that we have to think about or the most important. Thanks. Um, as I think about your answer there, I think about um, something that not only Bernie Sanders, but others in our political discourse today are saying, which is that the corrupting influence of spending doesn't necessarily come through advertising or the media, but it comes in changing the body of people 
to whom elected officials are accountable. And you in the book talk quite a bit about the concept of publics and that democracy is really about publics, who they are, what they want, um, and how government responds to them. I wonder if you might have anything to say about whether the the influence of money is creating a different set of publics to whom officials might be accountable than many scholars or lay analysts of American democracy might otherwise think? Well, again, once again, I think the answer is yes, but less yes than, um, than you might think. Uh, so yes, publics are certainly uh, shifting, and they're shifting as a result of all sorts of changes in um, the kind of institutional landscape that voters find themselves in. Um, in truth, those have been changing pretty consistently since the origin of the republic. Um, so um, to suggest that they were sort of fixed until Citizens United or they were fixed until McCain-Feingold or something like that, and then it was at that point that um, somehow the whole thing kind of fell apart, I think that's uh, a misunderstanding of kind of where the history of those publics comes from. So yes, I do think that um, the, the current influence of money in politics uh, encourages um, elected officials to pay a lot of attention to a relatively few very wealthy people, uh, and in particular um, to pay attention to corporate interests, because the main thing Citizens United, Citizens United did was not to increase the amount of money, uh, but to make that money be, uh, be able to come from corporate interests as opposed to individuals. Um, so yes, I do think that's true. I just think that we need to recognize that publics are always shifting um, and that there's no inherent reason why um, uh, publics that are organized in different ways can't compete uh, with publics that are organized around money. So in thinking about shifts in publics and shifts, as you mentioned, in institutions, shift in, um, shifts in how our politics is constructed, your title gets toward another kind of shift. You use the, the alliterative phrase Tocqueville town halls and Twitter. Um, and I think that for many of us, it, it will help to know exactly who was Alexis de Tocqueville and what might he or his writings help us understand about how Americans use things like town halls or even Twitter to deliberate about political issues today. Sure. So um, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French um, aristocratic scholar. He was a, um, an a, a acute observer of the world um, and a sociological theorist, although he didn't call himself that. Um, but he, was, uh, he came from the French aristocracy, um, and he came out of curiosity in the early 19th century to uh, observe um, the, the nascent American republic. Um, and he wrote, of course, the book that um, everyone's read little tiny pieces of, but most people have not read all of, um, uh, the, the magisterial work called Democracy in America. Um, uh, and it, most people, if they think about Tocqueville, um, think about his emphasis on the idea that Americans were a nation of joiners. That is, that um, Americans join uh, voluntary organizations and do a lot of kind of um, volunteer and community level organizational work outside of the scope of government. Um, and that and he does definitely make that point that this is one of the things that's that really characterized American political culture. 
but more generally, I think what Tocqueville gave us was the idea that it really was democratic culture and not democratic institutions that gave rise to the uniqueness of the American experience. Um, and so what I've tried to do in the book is to take off from that insight um, that, that it's American democratic culture that, that matters more um, and figure out how that works over the course of a dramatically changing both um, ideological environment and media environment, institutional environment um, over the centuries since he was here originally to, um, to observe America. Um, it, I think one of the key things um, that he talks about is the emphasis um, that, that Americans put on sort of anxiety around the election, um, the sense of promise, the sense of um, kind of, of self-expression um, that Americans uh, uh, placed in their electoral moments, um, as well as the sense that, that it was culture itself that, um, that made Americans... Um, uh, emphasize equality, formal equality, um, and em emphasize kind of indi individual freedom. So I think those are things that um, that come out of Tocqueville and that give us ways of thinking about democracy in the centuries since. So when you talk about culture, how does that shape the way that you think about town halls or today Twitter, the spaces in which people are interacting politically? thinking about those as spaces where culture is happening and perhaps even where culture is being formed and reformed. How is that way of thinking about politics different from that which we read about in the mainstream media, in bits and pieces of political discourse and jargon, jargon coming to us um, in, in tweets and in, in headlines? What does it mean to say that really what matters for democracy is culture? Yep, that's a great question. So I think the, there are a couple things about it. One is uh, that it it suggests that we ought not place quite so much emphasis on the um, kind of parties, groups, and movements approach in which we think about uh, political institutions as being the primary movers of democracy. Um, so um, if you if you read a um, you know politics section of a major newspaper or um, or any of the uh, sort of commentary websites right or left, what you're likely to see is a conversation about uh, how one party is organized or about the structure of the Congress, um, the brokenness of the Senate, uh, even gerrymandering, big money in politics. Um, all these sorts of ways that political institutions might be failing to um, uh, might be failing to represent transparently the um, character of the underlying uh, political voice or view. Um, and again, I don't want to say that those are incorrect, but, but I think they're not the main way that that democracy works. Um, and that is that the main way that democracy works is that people, um, develop cultural attitudes, cultural approaches um, that um, that represent sort of who they want to be and who they and what they want to promote. Um, and political institutions mostly come into play when those uh, when those cultural attitudes are deeply divided, and so um, we're working on ways to kind of get the margins to work. But and so at this moment when we are. Um, uh, quite divided in a sense that most people have commitments either one way or the other. That's why institutions seem to matter so much right now. Um, but that 
uh, culture is actually more um, valuable because it's actually about how people are developing those commitments. Um, and the institutions would matter less if the culture were less divided. I guess the other thing I would say about that general area is, I've just said that it doesn't matter so much to pay attention to political institutions. I think it, what it does pay, mean we have to pay more attention to um, is the character of political discourse and deliberation. Who talks, who listens, in what context do they talk, um, you know, how do the how do media institutions and the structure of both audiences and speakers in the media um, either reinforce or break out of cycles of kind of all the same news and ideas? I think those are those are the, the functions of culture, and I think those are are actually where the democracy is um, is much more broken than in the kind of political institutions that people talk about. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and it relates to to an argument you make elsewhere in the book, which um, involves a, a paradox you point out, that the people who are most likely to be involved and vocal in our political deliberation today seem to also be those who are the most ideologically steadfast, who are uneager to compromise. Do you have a sense of why that's true, or is it true? Um, so I think it's true because... Um, because the people who, <clears throat> the people who are um, ideologically committed, ideologically, as you say, steadfast, are also those who have spent a lot of time and energy uh, thinking about and considering viewpoints. Um, and so I think to some extent that's going to be um, a generic uh, human fact that, um, that knowing a lot about politics is going to be related to uh, being fairly committed about politics, and the, the causal arrow there runs both directions. Um, I think the other piece of that, though, is that um, we have entered a moment where um, the media structure and the audience structure um, and the, the, um, the sort of affordances of social media all lend themselves to allowing people to um, spend most of their energy reinforcing their political views as opposed to challenging them. And if you want your views challenged, you have to actually go work and get them challenged, which is not something most people are interested in doing. Um, so I think that that those new, um, new facets of the media landscape exacerbate um, those tendencies that are already out there for, for people who know a lot to be pretty clear in what they believe. As I think about that, um, and I r relate it back to your previous point about the reason for which there is so much focus on political institutions rather than political culture today is that there exist certain divisions in our culture. It brings me back to the work of people like Richard Hofstetter writing in the mid-20th century about the culture of paranoia in American politics. And it makes me wonder, are the new media forms that you're talking about exposing new divisions? Are, are they only really providing institutional grounds upon which existing long-standing divisions become more visible in our politics? Um, if I understand what you're asking, um, tell me if I'm understanding this wrong. If I understand what you're asking, uh, it's essentially are, are the new media landscapes and the new um, social media and so on, are they just exposing, um, <coughs> sorry, are they just exposing uh, uh, fissures in the political culture that exist always or are they doing something new? Is that kind of what you're asking? Yeah, as I think about um, 
as I think about mid-century politics and and the Red Scare and the um, the hostilities around the civil rights movement, it seems that our politics has, in fact, always been divided. But it's a yeah. question of who is who is divided against whom and what technologies exist to bridge those divisions. And so is it a case of we now lack the kinds of institutions which used to bridge those cultural divisions? Or is it that the institutions that we ha now have are creating new and more profound cultural divisions, or perhaps some of each? Well, I think not only some of each, but I think those are actually the same effect um, explained differently or, or expressed differently. Uh, let me talk that through a little bit. Um, so, yes, certainly true that um, American political culture has always been deeply divided, and um, I'm not even sure that I would say it's particularly more so now than it has been at other key moments in the past. Um, a couple of things, though, um, um, exacerbate or make that division perhaps more dysfunctional. Um, one of those is the tendency of the new media to provide very few spaces where people are forced to engage with um, different political viewpoints. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. if we think about the, um, the techniques that social movements once used to kind of insert themselves into the public sphere, um, right, those, those techniques, um, such as the sit-ins and the major rallies and so on, those were, were, in some senses, very media-centered. They really relied on a media that could be relied upon to, uh, to bring um, their message to a fairly wide swath of the public. Um, it, and so the demise of that kind of media, I think, plays a role in, in, um, in, part of the, in destroying part of the link between um, the, that conflict on the ground and how the rest of the population sees that conflict. So I think that's piece one of it. And, that, mm -hmm. and when I talk about the new media landscape, I think that's partly social media, the tendency of people to be able to see only those, or to, to pay attention only to those messages that they uh, pre-select as, being, um, uh, the, as them being likely to agree with. But it's also the, um, the commercial media landscape, um, which has changed really the audience structure so that very few people pay attention to news that they think of as just plain news. Um, and we all know that, you know, there's all kinds of reasons to think just plain news isn't just plain news. But it was more just plain news than um, the highly charged opinion shops that, um, that Fox News really leads the way in. Um, and, and so having a, it's not just having um, the sort of devolution of media into social media, that's one element of it. But it's also the fact that the the broadcast media has um, adopted a style in which um, everything that they broadcast has a point of view. And therefore, um, those, uh, those big divisions are refracted through a much more um, sort of self-selected lens than, uh, than used to be the case. Uh, the other thing I would say is that <clears throat> This actually is something of a story of political institutions, but it's a story of political institutions with a cultural bent. Um, uh, every time a member of Congress says anything, um, and anybody hears it, um, it's on social media or it's on the web or it's picked up by either a friendly news channel or a, or a hostile news channel. So 
um, in, a, in a sense, if we think about um, almost the sort of social network that these people are addressing, it is almost always already the entire country, right? They, there is no point at which they can engage in a kind of um, uh, small scale conversation, um, test out ideas on particular publics, um, uh, not have the stakes be real high. Um, and I think that that's a function of social media as well. And what it means is that um, uh, there's there's relatively little um, incentive for uh, representatives of any kind to um, try to appear moderate, to try to appear um, calm and conversational and uh, uh, deliberative. It's generally better for them to seem strong and indignant and um, uh, you know, sort of standing up for what they believe. Um, and so that I think is a, it's a story of the way that the, the political institutions are responding to the cultural realities. How new do you think that is? I, I, I'm asking particularly with regard to, um, the tendency in, um, particularly the liberal blogosphere to point to the threat of Tea Party challenges as a reason for which particularly Republican politicians tend to take positions which eschew uh, moderate policies and right. look toward look toward this ideological um, ideological steadfastness, um, as we discussed earlier. You seem to be pointing not to the the simple political or movement effect of the Tea Party or other sources of conservative primary challenges here, you seem to be pointing toward a much more profound, deeper cultural effect. Is that right? Um, yes, although I think it's related to the effect you're talking about. <clears throat> um, the profound cultural effect I'm talking about is that when, your audi when audiences are segmented, when people can uh, expect to be talking to small groups of people at once, to be trying out new ideas, um, and sort of to have the stakes be lower because the audience is smaller. Um, I think that opens up some opportunities structurally for people to, um, uh, for people to um, uh, sort of consider one another's points of view, be somewhat generous uh, in their conversational styles, even consider things like compromise. Um, and I think that uh, when the whole world is watching all the time, um, it is actually that the incentives are actually not to be seen as moderate, but rather to be seen as um, uh, steadfast, you know, hard nosed, really, really um, sort of uh, devoted to a position or a cause. Mm -hmm. I also think that there's a, that, you know, that this is not the only source of that set of incentives. Uh, and it certainly is the case that um, there's a, um, the kind of Matthew effect going on as well, where um, when you know when a particular party wins a state house or wins the um, the the government and is then able to gerrymander, and so uh, new districts tend to be even less competitive than their old districts were, and so um, so people so Congress people are um, uh, are often addressing a public that's in their district that is. Uh, very different from the general public of the country because of this gerrymandering. So that too is a cultural effect that has uh, an institutional story behind it. 
and I think the Tea Party idea, you know, the, the Tea Party challenge idea, is uh, is true, um, but uh, is just one one version of this um, more general phenomenon. Yeah, thanks. That's a that's a really nice point. Um, transitioning a little bit to um, your discussion of citizenship in the book, um, which relates to our previous conversation because we were talking about the degree to which people become exposed to alternative views and that in today's political climate, people have to actively seek out opportunities to do that, whereas before it may have been easier um, or a little bit more automatic to, to encounter difference. Um, so when you talk about citizenship in the book, you don't seem to be talking about it in the political sense. You seem to be talking about it in the cultural sense. Um, what, to you, does citizenship in a cultural sense mean? And what does it mean to be a good citizen in that sense? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think, um, I don't know that I have a really strong or sort of pat answer ready for you. Um, I think that, uh, you know, one way that we think about citizen is that it includes something about belonging. Um, and public belonging, you know, that, that can be everything as simple as, you know, what, where's your passport from? Uh, what country do you physically live in? Right. Those are the kinds of things that we immediately think of when we think about citizenship. Um, but citizenship, I, I like to think about citizenship in a cultural sense as being about uh, belonging with an active or practical uh, part of it. Um, and so being uh, being active doesn't just mean expressing citizenship, right? When, so when I ask my students what, what makes someone a good citizen, they almost universally say, well, they have to vote. Um, so I think voting is a piece of that. What I think is more general is um, a set of beliefs about belonging and a set of practices that connect people to uh, the, um, the uh, communities or the publics that they're part of. And that means uh, paying attention. Um, it means I, sort of self-identification as part of that public. Um, and it means uh, 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 practices such as voting, but also um, reading the newspaper and participating in that kind of media and cultural environment that, uh, that makes people feel like they're part of it. So this may be a, a chicken or the egg question then, but when we think about the relationship between the media and technologies of politics through which people are able to go beyond voting and engage in politics in other ways through engagement, through consumption of news and information, through participatory feedback in the political process by contacting representatives or other people who hold official positions. Is there any merit, do you think, to the argument that today the media and technology are preventing people from developing the kinds of cultural capacities that you're talking about here because of the way in which our media, both mainstream media and social media, are siloed? Um, I'm not sure that I would go so far as the word preventing. Um, I think preventing suggests um, a stronger effect of the institution that I would be willing to provide or willing to agree with. Um, I do think that um, there are certain things that different kinds of technologies afford, kinds of practices that some that technologies make some practices easier and others harder. Um, and that one of the things that the current media landscape makes harder 
is those conversations across political divisions, um, seeking to be the you know the sort of standards that I use in the book um, are um, uh, civil, frank, thorough, and accurate uh, conversation. And I think those are um, you know those are made more difficult in a media environment that. Uh, doesn't value calmness, um, that doesn't value uh, cross, um, sort of cross collaboration uh, or cross discussion. So yes, uh, it's made more difficult, but it's not prevented. Oh, I like your phrasing there because the language of preventing that we hear in, in stories about political participation and in, um, in discussion, not only about the media, but um, in relation to another point that you make in the book about um, about laws regarding voting and who is eligible to vote, to vote and what kinds of documents do they need. One of the things that you seem to be trying to get away from is the idea that institutions really determine what people do politically. Um, you, for example, point out that while there are certainly deleterious effects upon certain groups of voter ID laws, that those laws in and of themselves are not necessarily preventing people from, from participating politically. Is that accurate? Is that an, ac an accurate summary of, of the argument that you're making? Uh, yes, I think it's accurate, but I actually would go significantly further with that point. Um, I think not only uh, do those laws not have as big of an effect as we worry about them having, but that in many cases they may actually turn out to be counterproductive. Uh, uh -huh. Well, I should say counterproductive if the point of them is to reduce voter turnout, which I think many people think is the main reason uh, that they're being implemented. Um, and let me explain why. So, uh, um, going way back to the uh, um, to the Motor Voter Act, which was um, supposed to, you know, really uh, increase voter turnout uh, by making it federal law that people could register to vote um, at the DMV when they got their driver's license. Um, and the idea of this um, was that maybe the reason people weren't voting is that it was too onerous to have to um, to go to special lengths to register to vote. Um, and this is this expresses the more general idea um, in political science in particular that um, people tend to vote when it's really easy to vote and they pe and people tend to vote less if it's harder to vote. Uh, and on first blush, that seems like a reasonable idea. People in general do things that are easier more than they do things that are harder. Um, but here's the here's the deal is that um, in fact, motor voter doesn't seem to have had much effect on uh, getting more people to vote. It reduced the turnout of people who were registered, probably because it managed to register more people who were never going to vote to begin with. Um, and similarly, um, some of the various um, uh, sort of state level attempts to make it easier to vote, things like one stop voting and um, one stop registration and so on. These have minor effects, but they're really not very impressive, um, certainly in, in comparison to the size of the effort that goes into making the, making voting easier. Um, and I think so I think the, the weight of the evidence is that the main reason people don't vote is not because it's hard to vote. Um, I think the main, pe main reason people don't vote is because they don't think it matters very much um, or they're not tuned into it. Um, or um, it's just sort of not something, not part of the culture that they're uh, that they're in, that they're part of. Um, getting around to thinking about the um, the voter suppression um, attempts, uh, you know, voter ID and so on. I think what 
one of the things that we saw is that um, groups of voters who felt that they were being targeted by this, uh, particularly voters of color, uh, low-income voters, uh, when they were paying attention, they noted that um, that this was being understood and put forward as a voter suppression attempt. Um, whether or not that was true, that was their perception. And because of that, um, in a couple of key cases, we know that that people went out to vote in greater numbers, they stood in line for longer. So there's two sides to the equation of whether it's worth it for you to vote. Uh, and one of those is sort of how cheap is it or how easy, and we spent a lot of time on that. But the other side of it is, well, how much does my vote matter? And I think people learned from the voter suppression attempts that their vote might matter a whole lot. Um, and so, um, so that's why it backfired, I think, or could backfire, is that um, if people feel that their vote is being threatened, they may actually value it more and use it more. In the run-up to the 2012 election, the governor of Pennsylvania, upon the consideration of a voter ID bill there, suggested that that bill would, in fact, help to deliver Pennsylvania's electoral votes to Governor Romney rather than President Obama. Um, as you talk about the 2012 election in the book, generally, instead of talking about policies and priorities, and also rather than talking about particular um, groups of voters um, and, and, and the issue campaigns that mobilize them, you talk about the particular roles and responsibilities that the different candidates use to form the narratives that served as the backbones for their campaigns. Can you tell us a little bit more about this approach to thinking about electoral politics and why it's a helpful way to understand what happened in the 2012 election? Yes, I'm happy to do that. Uh, just to just to clarify, um, the, in the Pennsylvania case, uh, the, that fine gentleman turned out to be wrong, of course. Right. Uh, and Pennsylvania went for Obama, and I think that's an effect of um, the misunderstanding of the importance of political institutions as opposed to political culture. Now, uh, when we think about political culture, um, I think one of the things I try to do in the book is to show the extent to which um, Obama and Romney demonstrated very different uh, kind of understandings of what it means to be American, um, of kind of what it means to be a good citizen. And I, and I work through just comparing some of their campaign rhetoric um, and the, the um, sort of ideas and symbols that they are um, that they're pointing toward. Um, uh, and this, the ideas and symbols that, um, uh, that Obama is pointing toward are, are, tend to be collective. Um, they tend to be future-oriented. Uh, and they tend to understand, ironically enough, they tend to understand citizenship in the old-fashioned Republican way, which is um, as being part of a public or a republic. Um, whereas the, the Romney um, uh, rhetoric focuses much more on individual benefit, um, on uh, the, the success or failure of individual people and of the um, sort of... Um, evacuation of the public in favor of, of individual characteristics, individual behavior. As we think about the upcoming 2016 election, I think it might be fitting to close our conversation with your thoughts on whether you see any similar dynamics informing the early deliberations, both among the candidates of either party and between the two parties as they position themselves heading into next year's presidential elections? 
Um, you know, it's a little early to tell that uh, in terms of the kind of the big contest between the Republican and the Democrat. Um, I think that in the, in the um, Sanders versus Clinton um, race, frankly, right now, the rhetoric is neither one is, is using a, a kind of collective or, or a public rhetoric. Um, they are competing over um, what will make individual people do better. Um, so I would love to see, get, given that um, public rhetoric and, and ironically Republican rhetoric of that kind has been really successful for um, uh, for Democrats in the recent past. I would certainly love to see one or both of them um, kind of addressing things from that sort of um, um, assessment of the common good. Um, I don't think that we're seeing anything like that on the Republican side either. Um, and honestly, I'm not sure what to make of the of the rhetoric on the Republican side. I think that um, that process is so messy at this point, but it's really tough to understand uh, where it's likely to go. All right. Well, thank you very much, Andy, for all of your comments and insights. It's a, an outstanding book, and uh, we've enjoyed talking with you about it today. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for asking. I look forward to, uh, to more conversations. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Andy Perrin discussing his new book, American Democracy, From Tocqueville to Town Halls to Twitter. It was hosted by Jack Delhanty and produced by Matt Gunther at the Society Pages from the University of Minnesota. For back issues of the show, including a 2008 interview with Andy in which we discuss what motivates Americans to get out and vote, just visit our website, thesocietypages.org.